0: Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Hey there, my name is Andy, host of the History of Africa podcast. If you like learning about the history of the Asia-Pacific, I bet you'd also like learning about the history of the African continent. Our current season is focused on ancient Egypt. If that sounds appealing to you, come check out the History of Africa podcast here on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. Back to you, Craig.
1: You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube.
0: Well, hello there. Welcome to the Pacific War Channel. The channel where we cover the history of the Asia-Pacific War of 1937 to 1945 and all the major events that led up to it. And unfortunately, we are using Zoom today because the COVID measurements in the province we live in in Canada have become very strict.
1: Yeah, not like you guys were paying to see my face anyway, so glad to be here, but you're going to deal with my voice for today.
0: So for audio listeners who uh, I'm actually above a 1000 downloads on Podbean, I don't know if that's good or not, but uh, there are audio listeners. Uh, Sorry if the quality is less than usual. Uh, For those who watch on YouTube, I'm going to put up some random paintings and pictures to entertain you as we do this for once. So there is a bonus. And uh, you get to look at my parrot in the background. Uh, She is as notorious as ever waving around. And uh, this episode is going to be uh, a discussion about an episode I made uh, not too long ago on the Meiji Restoration. Meiji, not Meje. which I'm going to get a lot of flack for for a few weeks, I'm sure. Already seen
1: some comments. Yeah, well, we all know you're famous for your pronunciation, so uh, yeah, uh, that actually, ought to go really well. Uh, but little, little I update. wouldn't do any better, so. Little update. A little update
0: certain individual has contacted me to talk about my pronunciation of Chinese names, places, and events. And he is actually going to be doing a podcast with me soon um, to help me with my pronunciation uh, in Cantonese or Mandarin. I'm actually not sure which one this will be under. Simplified Chinese at this point. So we'll see where that goes. It's to be an interesting podcast where I get slapped around.
1: Yeah. So right. let's talk about the Meiji Restoration. And was, you know
0: uh, Yeah, you know what? I think the best way to describe it is the same way I described at the beginning of the episode in question. Making an episode on the Mechi restoration is like trying to explain the entire Renaissance.
1: Yeah, it's uh a lot going on, a lot of changes, both culturally, economically, socially. Uh you know, okay. and, and 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 it went over, it went over a fair period of time too. It wasn't a fifteen year rebellion or a, anything like that. You're talking a good uh, anywhere between sixty and a hundred years, depending on how you want to talk about it.
0: Technically, till we're looking at like 1858 to it should I should have technically gone 19... to 1912, but yeah. uh, purposes of because I'm making a YouTube channel. And my next huge episode is going to be the first Sino-Japanese War. I didn't want to talk about it, so I cut it at about 1890.
1: Yeah, well, that's it. And it's, uh, you know, officially till 1912. But I mean, some people even argue that it sort of leaks all the way into the, the First World War and whatnot. But for sure, a lot, a lot of changes. I mean... Looking at Japan, their, their export business completely shifted from one side to the other. Uh, they went from being a lesser known country to one of the world powers. Um, a whole lot happened. So well, why don't you take me through a little bit uh, what happened with the, the, the structure of Japan itself. And then we'll get into the financial stuff later, which uh, I know some people like.
0: Yeah. Uh, so like most episodes, I'll uh, try to brutally summarize it. <laughs> So the episode even before I did the uh, the Meiji Restoration was the opening in Japan, because Japan had gone through 214 years of very hardcore isolation, the Sakoko period. Uh, this didn't mean that they didn't uh, have some small trade. They did trade with like the Dutch, for instance, uh, but it was very, very limited. And of course, they trade with China. Needless to say, when good old, you know, uncle america came to burst open the door uh japan was quite unprepared um there's a lot of debate at the time they uh, some people wanted to fight the western barbarians as they called them some people just wanted to sign the treaties are being you know put before them they said okay we don't have any chances of survival we just need to go along with this and try to work our way up so that became a very short period called the bakumatsu period uh, it's a really? lot of we- yeah, a lot of Westerners are coming in the country. They're completely disrupting Japanese society because they're trying to trade, and they're trading all over the place. So Japan wasn't centralized very well, and a lot of regions were just basically independently doing things with these Western nations. Uh, for instance, Satsuma clan literally attacked the British. The British beat the hell out of them. The Satsuma were so shocked at how powerful the British weapons were that they asked them to trade with them, and they specifically bought a lot of weapons. Then uh we had two factions come about. There was a pro shogunate faction because the shogun was the ruler of Edo Japan which was the Tokugawa family at this period and there was an anti shogunate faction. So basically the anti shogunate faction wanted to dissolve the shogun because obviously he was the big head cheese of everything. Yeah. So get rid of the shogun. They said let's put the emperor back in charge like the old days and um let's uh, expel the barbarians. Originally, this is what they said. The shogunate faction said uh, we need to sign these treaties, uh, we need to work with the westerners because it's in our best interest for survival. Interestingly, the shogunate faction would uh, fight a war, a civil war, called the Boshin War. They lost. The anti-shogunate faction, which was mostly Satsuma, Choshu, Tosa domain, Got the emperor at the time to come on board with them. They became an imperial force, and they just destroyed Tokugawa Yoshinobu. Need- needless to say, their original idea of expelling the barbarians was completely tossed out after the war. It was completely—it was ridiculous. It- they couldn't possibly do it. They had no means to. So, uh, what happened was they ushered in the Meiji era. <laughs> I said Meiji. Oh my god, the Meiji era with Emperor Meiji. At the throne, and uh, the point of the episode was to just show all the shifts they had to do because they were looking at the world and they saw that they were extremely um, unprepared. With they had no modern military. Uh, They had no modern institutions. Everything was inadequate, basically, from their point of view. And the only way to survive what they saw as a threat of war from Western nations or to be colonized, because we're looking at China at the same time, and China's going through two opium wars. And from the most part, it looks like China has just been completely, utterly destroyed, as being colonized. Japanese are terrified. So they say, we need to become exactly what these people are that are colonizing everyone. They send out a mission, the Iwakara mission, to go look at all the countries in the world, the most powerful, and they want to copy their educational institutions, political, military, etc. Take the best from every single place that has the best. And they do it. And the Meiji uh, Restoration is basically, it's a complete shift of what was Tokugawa Edo Japan into a new era, which fused Western ideals with ancient Japanese ideals, because the population they didn't think would be completely on board if they didn't, you know, take something from their ancient beliefs. And this was actually seen as a way of getting rid of Chinese ideals, because uh, obviously Japan had uh, like 90% of its influence was from China for a lot of its history, and they wanted to kind of diminish that and go back to the ancient way of the Yamato race, as you would have called it
1: yeah well you mentioned in your previous episodes that it was always a very big brother little brother kind of relationship with China and Japan but you could very easily argue that this is when Japan started not necessarily to overtake China but this is when they really started growing out of the shadow and uh, part of it like you said being China in complete ruin as far as so many civil wars going on the 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 downgrade of their economy because of everything going on after having lost all the wars, after being colonized, after losing so many major cities and trading ports. uh, This is where Japan really started to shine. And I mean, you could tell that by their rapid population growth or economic growth. Like you said, they went to to modernize a lot of things going more for Western and European standards and ideals on that. But it really rose them, it's almost like they got more than what they expected rather than just doing it to not be colonized or not be invaded they actually rose to being one of the strongest powers in the world at that time and right up until the world wars began they were and it took them a long time to come back from that but the the, this is really what put them on the map
0: yeah if you were grading them on a score of you know one to ten on all the nations that industrialize themselves, Japan, it's a 12, it's in a league of its own. It did yep. what other Western nations did in 200, you know, hundred years. They did it in 25 to 40. It's, uh, yep. it's incredible.
1: Yeah. Well, if you look, you know, I was looking over some, some stuff myself, and if you look around the mid 1850s, right at the beginning, I mean, Japan's population growth was massive yes. getting to a point where you look, uh, Edo had at a population of almost 1 million people, uh, Kyoto and Osaka around 400,000 each, uh, which is starting to be really, really big considering the size of their country itself. Um, and at the time, one of their main commodities or their main commodity was actually rice. Uh, and what's, what, what was nice and how that made their economy go around, not only obviously is it a consumable commodity, which helps a lot when you have rapid population growth, because like we saw in China, food is a very, very large concern. Yep. when you have such fast population growth so rice was a good answer to that and that's why most of the local farmers actually paid their taxes in the form of rice at the time uh the daimyos would take anywhere what, i think you reported 40 to 60 percent of their crop growth every year was paid to tax uh which was a fair chunk and some farmers suffered for it Enormous, but at this so, yeah. But at the same time, they're living off the land. And it got to a point that Daimyo's, I think, got a little bit greedy with this. Because they were even making... uh, I'm trying to remember what they called them exactly. But in essence, uh, they they were selling contracts for rice that had not yet been harvested. To try and raise more money for the capitals in the state. Uh, And for those of you who follow modern finances, this is actually you could argue it's one of the first times where you'd see something similar to a futures contract or a futures trade. Where they were basically buying and selling rice that hadn't grown or hadn't been harvested yet.
0: Which which is
1: a really interesting concept when you look at modern economics.
0: Just to explain to the audience, because this actually is something they should conceive. Uh, In Edo, Japan, rice is actually a currency in a lot of ways, because the daimyos would be paid in koku, which is a um, one person serving of rice for a year. So technically, well, the daimyos were paid in coinage, mind you too, but a lot of the daimyos were being paid in Koku, which they paid to their samurais. So there would be a tier list of high ranking to low ranking samurais within their hand domains. And then they would allocate the funds, to, you know, depending on the rank of the family. There's a very strict caste system. So rice is like, it's, it was unbelievably important to the economy. And it uh, got pretty messed up during <laughs> the Meiji era. Um,
1: yeah. Well, yeah, but that's but that's when they shifted so much to textiles, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, bring us through the the mid eighteen hundreds to kind of your ending point there, and we'll get into some uh, textiles. Uh,
0: it's so it's so hard to try and summarize this in a chronological order. But uh, I had originally said that there was a civil war the civil war as you would imagine thinking of edo japan was fought among samurai uh you know like the shinsengumi legendary mercenary force under the tokugawa shogunate fought fighting against Setsuma's uh, samurai force uh led by saigo takamori the most the last samurai actually most famous probably in the world so uh, when they won the boshin war um there was a charter oath that was raised to uh emperor meiji and he of course you know acknowledged the charter oath and a part of this meant that they needed to modernize the army and a modern army as you would see in any western uh, force would be conscription you know it's commoners picking up guns right uh this is unheard of in japanese society you trained as a samurai and the peasants were you know actually treated terribly and you could kill them if they disrespected you but you were the guys who had the weapons they abolished uh what was the caste system which was called shono kosho and I actually have everything written here. Uh, Shinokosho, Shino I already mispronounced it. Shinokosho was a caste system. She was the warrior caste. No was the farming peasants class. Ko, craftsmen and artisans. And Sho was the merchant class. And a funny thing, merchant class was the lowest in uh, the official class system. There was actually um, untouchables like you would see in India, and these were leather tanners and such. So um, when they abandoned this caste system, that meant that uh, everybody was a commoner. You know, you could uh, look towards your own future, uh, do any type of work you want. You weren't in the rigid feudal system where, you know, it was uh, your dad was a samurai, you were a samurai. Uh, but this also meant the end of the samurai. And it was the end of daimos. Uh, daimios became governors, hands became prefectures, and the farmers ended up... In a peculiar situation, Uh, they now owed taxes to the government and the taxes were half their crops and the other half was basically (laughs) going to the governors and a lot of these farmers were tenants, so they didn't own their property. So these farmers couldn't really survive. It was awful. It's a a terrible growth spurt for a while and it didn't get fixed. for quite. it, It took a long time to fix the farm situation, I'll say that much.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's what led to a lot of the production shift in Japan. Now, when you're talking about this change in in general rankings, where the daimyos became governors and all this stuff, uh, did they still more or less keep the, the, the pecking order the same? Or did some people kind of get flip-flopped around as far as their general importance in the society?
0: So all the former daimyos, Almost all of them just became governors of the prefecture, which was already their hand. So um, in Edo, Japan, all of the different provinces were called hands, but now there was a newly established prefecture. It didn't really change much of the border lines or anything, but it was just a way for them to kind of legitimize this new central government. So mm-hmm. the daimyos, this is where it gets interesting. Remember, they just fought a civil war and the southern clans of Setsuma, Choshu and Tosha were the winners. The northern clans had allied themselves to the shogunate and lost. Uh, you would think they would penalize and hurt all these people who lost the war. They didn't. Um, really? The em- yeah, yeah. The emperor and a lot of them, even the victors said, uh, you know, this is a terrible war, but we there was a goodwill and they let everyone have positions. A lot of the people who lost the war ended up in high-ranking positions, surprisingly. And um, yeah, everyone got a piece of the pie if you were already a big cheese. I mean, I'm sure some people lost out, but uh, for, for the better part, they kind of describe it as they just moved on to government positions. A lot of a lot of the talk is if you were a samurai, you would probably become a, a high-ranking officer in the military, or you know, you would do certain things, become a businessman. Some of them,
1: really, that's definitely a a switch, though, because back then, I think you. You were describing that you were more born into a samurai's lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, you were born and bred to only do that. And to have to switch to a different kind of of occupation must have been a bit tough for them.
0: And this is where we're going to get to the second war that (laughs) occurred. Um, The abolishment of the samurai class had devastating effects on society, as you would imagine. A lot of samurai could not... uh, cut it out in this new world they some you know a lot lot of samurai ended up joining the military they joined institutions like politics education being a merchant even though that was seen as really disgraceful in Edo times but of course we had a lot of samurai who simply couldn't do anything they became unemployed and disaffected disenfranchised it was terrible and Someone took notice of this, and his name was Saigo Takamori, the great victor who led Satsuma Clan, the largest clan arguably during the Boshin War. Uh, so do I have a picture? Uh, I don't even. Well, anyways, uh, anyone can look up uh, Saigo Takamori. Um, if you watch The Last Samurai, Ken Watanabe's character is based off of him, loose, loosely. It's not very accurate. The film. So Saigo Takamori. Um, He didn't really appreciate a lot of the changes that were going on, but he understood them and abided them. He understood modernization in the military and such, and he himself educated himself on the use of the Western artillery, and he became a great military leader. Right. But as the years went on, more and more things kept changing, and he felt that the people in politics were corrupt, and they were messing over the country. One thing in particular is a famous... A conversation that he had over Korea um, when the emperor was established as the new ruler of Japan again they sent an envoy to Korea and they had written it in such a way using uh, certain kanji symbols that basically are used just for the emperor who the Koreans respected to be the Chinese emperor at that time because they were in that sphere of influence in, it's not like it was intentional, but the Japanese, when they sent this letter, they were basically saying to Korea, OK, you're a vassal state now of us because we have an emperor. And the Koreans were like, uh, n- n- no, we're going to stick with China. So don't don't talk to us like that. They, they, they actually later fixed this whole situation. But Saigo Takamori <laughs> basically said, well, we've been insulted. A lot of people feel like we've been insulted in Japan. And he said, why don't you send me as an envoy? And. I'm basically going to be an asshole, get myself assassinated by them, and we'll have a reason to go and invade them, because he was pushing to invade Korea. The reasons why he would want to do this, probably, as a lot of scholars would say, is because he saw so many disenfranchised samurai in his country. He's like, why don't we just take all the guys who are unemployed and stuff, bring them to Korea, and they'll just rule it like a feudal state, because they understand that system, and they aren't adapting to the new one, right? Actually kind of smart. Other they're uh, yeah. getting
1: himself killed part, like an idiot.
0: Oh, he wanted to. He, he was, he just said, he he actually, it's in writing. He's like, I'm just going to act like a complete, uh, he said, I'm not going to be a good envoy like the other person who should be sent, and they'll probably kill me. And he said, there you go. Uh, they said, no. They said, we're, you know, we're modernizing the country. We, pot- we can't possibly do an expedition to attack a country like Korea. And uh, this basically was the last straw for Saigo Takamori. You know, the first one was he was a great victor of this war. They threw out the Sono Joy movement, which uh, was expelling the barbarians. That was the first notch that hurt him. They messed over the samurai class. That really bothered him. So after he was told no to the expedition to Korea, he retired. He he resigned from his government position, which was a great one. He was known as one of the three great el- like nobles of Japan. And he went back to his uh, Han of Satsuma, where he formed an academy for military training. Uh, very modern. And he took in ex-samurai, as you would imagine, those who couldn't find work. This turned into almost, I think, 132 academies. And he in, I don't know if it was his purpose to do this, but he basically created a paramilitary force that could overthrow the government by accident. Because all wow. these students were being trained in modern artillery and, you know, guns like this is not uh, Last Samurai, as it would portray it with samurai swords. Like, of course, they had swords on them, but this was modern arms. And um, the government went ahead and sent spies to see what he was doing. They got caught, and one of the spies said he was sent there to kill Saigo Takamori. So the students all raided every single arsenal in the prefecture, taking all the weapons. The government freaked out, uh, attacked them, and they. the students asked Saigo, we should rebel, and he reluctantly did, and he rebelled against the government, um, wearing his military uniform to show his allegiance to the emperor, mind you. And he simply said, I'm going to march to Tokyo to ask questions of corrupt politicians. That was his official kind of statement. Yep. And that led to uh, what would be called the the last stand of the samurai, where he eventually was defeated on the Battle of Shioyama, and he died. Yep. I'll have a whole episode on this and I've, I put a lot of work into it. It's going to be great. But I know I, that was like a, a summarization of like one of the most legendary battles in Japanese history and it doesn't do it uh, justice, but yeah.
1: Now, you mentioned military students. Let's get into students of another kind because you said there was huge education reforms oh, yes. in the time in Japan, uh, going to three different school systems, I think you said, primary, middle and university.
0: Yeah, and it's um, it changed very quickly over the years. But at the beginning, I, I'm not sure if I even said in the episode, it was like they only had like four months of education at the beginning. It was, it's, it's a little funny. Eventually, it becomes the exact same education model that we see today. But the first universities were mostly military, uh, great universities. And um, initially in the Magi era, it was, you know, the most important thing I would say was uh, making sure everyone's literate. They really focus right. on that. This is before the unbelievable militarization of the uh, country. But uh, the literacy was it was incredible. They almost had like 100% literacy, I think, by World War One, And they were the only country to really do that.
1: Yeah, a lot of the other European countries, and especially China, was lagging behind in that. Might have something to do with China still being in the middle of an opium crisis, but we're not going to go there. Mm.
0: Yeah, poor China is uh during the Meiji Restoration is going to face a, a handful of more rebellions, a, a Muslim uprising and other things. Uh then they're going to get attacked by Japan and they're going to have the Boxer Rebellion which is uh kind of the nail in the coffin.
1: Yeah, no they're they're not doing too hot. Now as far as these education systems though was it only the primary one that was mandatory or did they have to go through all of them how did
0: uh university yeah. i wouldn't imagine so primary yes yeah. so you're you um, elementary and primary absolutely
1: okay cuz yeah i don't think they were filling out college applications like they do in in north america now but uh you know for sure some of it had to be mandatory if that was like a full education reform yeah now, we were talking before a little bit about, uh, I had mentioned the textiles, and we're kind of getting right into the end of your, uh, well, what are we drinking over there?
0: Oh, I was just, I, I shouldn't do product placement, but it happens to be a Japanese beer, so I thought that was kind of funny.
1: Oh, excellent. Kidding. Did you, did you send me one at least? Of course not.
0: Yeah, it has a Purell bottle attached to it.
1: Yeah, Excellent so we're getting into around the late 1800s 1890s up until about 1920 which is kind of where you tailed off with uh with japan but uh, this is when the chinese the japanese uh textile industry really blew up
0: i can put up a little i do have one yeah the raw silk production chart here
1: exactly And so that's a perfect chart to show you how much it grew in the space of basically the Medji restoration. So 50 or 60 years, uh, their production went up almost 12 fold, which is absolutely ridiculous. A big part of this is not just due to the population growth. It's the fact that they were shying away from the rice production because it was crushing most of the farmers. And they were going more towards handmade production. I think you even mentioned in the episode, a lot of this was done by women uh, while they were home.
0: Actually, the silk business in Edo, Japan was almost, I would argue, and I know there might be someone who will say something else. It was exclusively in households. Run by women, whereas the Meiji era goes from this to steam-powered factories. So you can ima- you're looking at the numbers, and you see, okay, this is industrialization. There you go.
1: Yeah, well, that's basically what it was. But uh, the the silk production really stayed very steady for quite a while after this after this extreme boom. But there was that other side of it where the men's labor and a lot of it went more into factories and production. And the fact that they almost completely skipped, they skipped water-powered and went straight to steam-powered factories, which was a huge blow-up and just shot them right to the front of the line as far as production goes. Um, The only issue they ran into is that going from... A feudal system with, with workers that let's just say were, uh, I don't want to call them slaves, but let's say they weren't well compensated for their labor. They were Going, serfs. Yeah, basically. Switching from that over to wage labor, you'd think it would be a really good thing for the workers and for the country itself. The problem is with wage labor started coming wage disputes and they started seeing the first strikes in the mines and in the steel mills and all the places where it was where the production was happening and actually started leading to the forming of the first union workers unions in japan which anybody who's dealt with unions before knows that it's a whole basket of trouble for a lot of things
0: but they had a reason they had big reasons
1: (laughs) no no and it's not to say that their claims aren't justified the problem is, is having jumped to the front of the line, now all of a sudden they have such a huge production demand for these uh, these resources. But now that they're having union disputes, wage disputes, all this strikes left, right, and center, they even had to shut down two main mines, which had to be retaken over by the military when they went on strike. Uh, it slows down production a lot. And instead of going from a little production and now we're not doing anything now you have this big booming industry and when it all of a sudden comes to a standstill it can really really hurt the economy but nonetheless they went from you could argue very very old style to extremely modern in the period of 50 years which is ridiculous
0: yeah growing pains so like you were mentioning and it's funny to say oh you know there were strikes arguably some of these were worse than what we see in the western world during the industrialization period i mean the japanese they were being you know 12-hour shifts in and living in barracks and coal mines and then they're being beaten by guards you know the guards are not letting them slack off like this was brutal um the conscription act that took people into the military was being called by the commoners a as a blood tax and they associated this with the farming tax that we had mentioned earlier, where the farmers are paying 50% of their, you know, crops and taxes to the government, but then the other 50% is going to all these other things. It, it was, it was absurd. So yeah, yeah everyone got well, hurt.
1: It it made it very, very hard for the labor to live, to, to be sustainable. And I think that's what hurt them sort of coming into the later years and into the the first world war. Is is what slowed them down a little bit, and we'll get into that. I think in a future episode when you talk more about that stuff, in the early 1900s. But uh, it it definitely made it difficult, and especially when they had to bring the military in to reclaim these mines that had gone on strike. Uh, I don't I don't know. Do you have the exact? Do you have some rough numbers as to how many perished or uh, in the strikes? When, yeah, oh, when I, I brought the in military notes. in, it was. Uh, i seem to remember reading it was quite the massacre but
0: i uh, i didn't go extremely in depth into it because i couldn't touch every subject i wanted but um there was two major strikes i almost put in the episode one was a silk production strike made by women which i thought was interesting because you don't often see those as uh, being put in the limelight as much they're usually put down quickly, quick, and they're not reported on. And then there was a, the one was the coal mining strikes that you had mentioned, which a lot of people died because they were attacked by the military. It's just yeah. brutally. Uh, but uh, it, it's always been, you know, argued that it, it was on, on the same page as uh, any other Western country that went through its industrialization phase, uh, but brutal. In the Midwest of Canada, you know, we had some really bad ones in Calgary and Saskatchewan
1: yeah that's true that's definitely true Uh, i'm trying to see if i can look it up quickly Uh... and I'll
0: i'll just see oh god there's just there's so much to cover that's why i almost didn't do the episode it's uh You know, you're going to get flack from everybody about things you're not mentioning. It's like there is also in the economy, the Zaibatsu system, which, you know, one of the major Zaibatsus was Mitsubishi. And you know, everyone knows like Mitsubishi's a, a grand story. They start off as this minor kind of shipping company. They end up doing odd things. Like I think they even make cans at one point and then they become, you know, steam engine powered. And then they make engines. And then the Mitsubishi Zero Fighter is a product of Mitsubishi. And it goes on. Today there's Mitsubishi. You know, we still see it. It's it's incredible that it's like such an old story. Yeah and uh, i could exp- I'll, I'll explain what i mean by zaibatsu so zaibatsu was a system in which the government wanted to control industry at the beginning of the meiji restoration uh, kind of like a fascist state mind you um but they quickly saw that in the world of capitalism it didn't work so well so they said okay we're going to run industry alongside private entrepreneurs and together we'll make corporations and we'll you know there's regulation in there from the government but they really wanted the capitalists to do what they had to do in the free market and that was his Zaibatsu system and a corporation like i mentioned was mitsubishi it was a big one that came about but there was tons of others and it really flourished when japan opened its doors to to capitalism honestly like it, it was incredible the uh, the steam ships that came out that came out of it, like the numbers. I think I do have a chart that shows uh, the size of the Japanese merchant fleet. It's like it's crazy. By 1913, like it's it's enormous. Japan be- well obviously became a naval power. It had to; it was an island. But uh, it's O2 capitalism, of course. And uh, it's yeah, you
1: know. yeah, and you see that's what I'm reading now is even though the mines were retaken by the japanese military sorry to go back to this but even though they were retaken by the japanese military after the strikes in 1907 uh, they were still sort of capricious going into the years forward leading up all the way to world wars one and two where quite often the mines were actually worked by prisoners of war yeah Um, so that's, uh, you know, it means that the, the Japanese workers themselves were very, very negligent to, to get things done in there because of the obviously horrid, horrid working conditions.
0: Oh, completely forgot to mention, you know, one of the main features of industrialized nation in the 19th century is railroad. So as you can see, in 1872, they put in some tracks, they started, you know, railroad company. And it exploded. I think this is the quickest railroads were built. Like, look at, you know, our history in Canada, of course, we're a huge country, and it took a long time to go from the east to west. But uh, you look at this, 1872 to 1914, that amount of track, that's that's impressive for a country that just came out of a feudal state. (laughs) It's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah, but I think back then that th- th- that was their main source of long-distance transport as far as uh, going cross-country went. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, trying to uh, find a way to conclude most of this episode. Uh, you know what? The, the Medjay restoration is a topic that I don't think a lot of people are going to want to watch because it is, quote-unquote, more boring history. Uh, a lot of people don't like economic history, and I would argue the Meiji Restoration is—it's like sixty percent economics. You know, this is the big cultural shift, and I'm, we're not even talking about like the religious shift. You know, we're going into Shinto again in Japan. Uh, the uh, the differences in education, the art art changed dramatically during this period. There's like there's so much to say. It's it's like the you know it's the Renaissance of of Asia. It's it's enormous. uh but uh as far as my channel's concerned i can disclose information as to where this is all going to be going now because i think things are going to get quicker on this channel i you know the channel is supposed to be about 1937 to 1945 and i say that in the opening of every episode which i'm not getting as much flack for as i thought i thought people would actually get really annoyed at that but um, I just, I felt I needed to do episodes on the most important events that created, you know, the monsters that we see during the Sino, the second Sino-Japanese War, we'll call it World War II. And it's important, you know, China is dramatic, it, like the changes of 19th century Qing dynasty China to the revolution in World War I that we're going to see to uh, this fight between Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong over communism and nationalism, like it's incredible. And then on the other side, Japan becomes a military, it's just a military state controlled with uh, by the military. They have a gun to the emperor's head, though the emperor had his part to play too. And then the other players will be mentioned. I'm going to talk about Korea Uh, The Philippines particularly. I have a lot of Filipinos watching this channel, and I acknowledge that. I'm going to probably do a standalone episode soon on the history of 19th century Philippines all the way up to 45, really quick. But uh, as for the major events coming up, we're going to have the first Sino-Japanese War, the Boxer Rebellion, uh, the Russo-Japanese War, which is going to be very entertaining. I am looking forward to that. I hope I can find some great footage for it. Uh, you know, the revolution of China, so the fall of the Qing Dynasty, and they finally become a republic, quasi-republic, it's more like a warlord state. And after World War I, that's when I'll do some standalone episodes on kind of the politics and how things are going, but we're going to quickly find ourselves in the 1930s, and that's when the shit hits the fan between China and Japan.
1: Yeah, well, it's definitely a lot of things leading up to that. And uh, for sure, we're not going to cover it all. That's why we, I think we went out of our way to say in the last episode that if anybody has a particular event or time period, they want us to look into more or an episode, they'd be interesting to see something they want to get elaborated on more. Feel free to leave a like or leave a comment somewhere. And uh, we can always try and delve into something in more detail. And as it is, we're we're are just more or less doing surface research for most of these topics uh, until we get to the the real meat of the Pacific War, uh, which is Craig's specialty.
0: Yeah, um, um, I said it to um, I won't say the guy's name because I'm doing a podcast with him soon, and I don't know if he wants his, his name up. But uh, I was trying to explain to him: I am absolutely not a scholar on Chinese history. I. Knew as much as you needed to know f- for Japanese history because I took a lot of specialized Japanese history classes. You know, just the history of Japan in general, Edo, and then I took very specialized classes in the Pacific War. That's what I know the most of. And anything outside of that, 1931 to 1945 range, more vague. You know uh mind you my 19th century Japan's very good uh but I had to learn myself all of these all the stuff about China and people call me out like call me out on anything I get wrong because I'm doing this extremely quick like I read uh for 19th century China for my opium wars and my typing I read only uh five six books which is disgraceful usually you know you'd read like 10 to 20 but uh yeah, it's, uh, it's an experience for me as well, looking at all this. And uh, initially, before I started to make my content, I just read a ton. Uh, I read about 20 books on just uh, Hirohito, 1930s Japan, obviously the war itself, uh, certain political people in Japan and their lives. Uh, and then I realized, uh, God, I really want the background information. So I went further back. 19th century Japan you know I looked oh I should explain the you know the Medji restoration oh I should explain you know the isolation period I won't go past Edo but I should explain a little bit of this and then I realized oh man but the other side of the coin is I need China so I said okay I'm gonna read the biography of Chiang Kai-shek I did Mao Zedong I'm like oh you know what I really need to talk about revolutionary China and then you see the beginning of my channel is the opium wars that go all the way to the 1830s it's a rabbit hole Uh, but, uh, we're getting there, we're, we're going to get there soon. And I know a lot of people who subscribe to my channel. It's only because of the, uh, the Midway episode that I did when this channel wasn't even called the Pacific War. Uh, we're going to come back to that. Um, I got a lot of people talking to me about that. A former uh, vet actually, U S Marine was uh, saying he wanted me to speak a lot about some, uh, aviation stuff. Uh, and I'm not an expert in uh, particularly American Aviation during World War II, as people will you know, remark about my Doolittle Raid blunder, where I said B-52s instead of B-25s left some aircraft carriers. I'll never let that down. I'm dyslexic. And uh, yeah, there'll be a lot of stand- standalone episodes coming soon.
1: Yeah, but we can see, uh, depending on the comments you got, since it's a very popular episode, when we get around that time period of the Midway episode, we could probably make another side episode and either delve into some of the issues people wanted to talk about more or correct a few things or, you know, just kind of touch it up a little bit and uh, that'll kind of center us into exactly where we're going for this. So,
0: Yeah, certainly. And uh, actually at the same time doing this podcast, I'm just looking at an email from, because the person who had contacted me, I got to move my camera. This looks, this looks weird for the audience because they can't see this. He, I am proposing to him the next episode, we might talk about the first Sino-Japanese War. So I haven't covered it yet in, in on the uh, actual channel. Uh, but it's going to be interesting, uh, this individual, he is Chinese. Um, and I, he's also going to be teaching um, characters. So the explanation of how the kanji works and everything, which is going to be very cool because... I am definitely not an expert on that. <laughs> very, li- very limited experience, and the experience I have is only Japanese. Uh, it's certainly not in Mandarin or Cantonese. Uh, so uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting coming up uh, the new stuff. And uh, our other friend Eric, that Justin happens to know, uh, he'll be back. He wants to talk about probably the Battle of Ledy Gulf or Guadalcanal. I don't know. He was between both and. Last time he was on it was a tangent. He went on like a twenty-five minute rant about artillery on aircraft carriers for the Japanese during World War II, which was fascinating, and uh, it was—it's uh, probably going to happen again. <laughs> but yeah, um, so I guess we can conclude with that. I'm sure we've touched about five percent of the Meiji restoration
1: yeah well again if there's any particular area of it someone wants to talk about more or has any questions or comments feel free to leave them for us we can always do more research or you know try and answer them individually depending on how it goes
0: yeah If so you... we're
1: all we're also getting accustomed to our new setup having to do this via distance right now so it's uh yeah it's a little harder for us please bear with us and uh we'll try to get the setup a little more professional and rolling better. Uh, in future videos
0: it's really fun to go from my actual job where i spend 50 percent of my time on zoom meetings to a zoom call for this podcast not using my grand studio which is a laundry room no one no one seems to have ever made a remark that my laundry machines are like what's being covered to the right
1: (laughs) i wasn't gonna say anything but i guess the cat's out of the bag now
0: well, interestingly enough, I'll just say this before we leave, I had two comments about my studio, and the only things that they remarked about was uh, that the map on the back of my wall is it's glossed, so the light rebounds right off it, and it's actually really annoying. I never thought about it, so uh, I need to uh, do something about the lighting. But everything else seemed to be cool, and some guy liked the swords. Like, no one no one mentions the fact that I have a real ch- authentic Chinese sword from World War One. Like, I, I don't just put that on the table, like, you know, anyways. Well, like it's not
1: like they can inspect it and authenticate it. Uh,
0: oh, they'll find out it's a fake. On a I'm YouTube sure. channel, Craig. I, I suspect it's a fake.
1: Yeah. <laughs> if anybody wants to donate to the channel so we can have the sword brought into Pawn Stars and authenticate it, feel free to do that. We're, also, we're I can gonna, use
0: five. We're,
1: we're, we're going to set up a GoFundMe so Chumley can come and uh, authenticate Craig's sword. Nice. This is, this is going to be the next project for the pacific war channel
0: uh and to conclude um oh my god because i'm so far ahead of what the episodes are going to look like uh the next episode people will see is going to be the Boshin war and get ready for a lot of cinema use because i like to use movies and i found a very i found two great movies to take footage from for this one japanese made
1: yep. excellent can't wait to see it
0: Thank you, Justin, for being the economics expert.
1: I don't know about expert, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll say I had a few things to say, but uh, glad to be here as always. Hopefully uh, we can get into a few more things in the next episode.
0: All right. So I'm going to zoom in on my parrot. So this has been the Pacific War Channel. And if you don't like and subscribe, my my little friend here, will. She she just, she won't get fancy treats. She, she likes cashews, and they're quite expensive. So. so please hit that subscribe button, like, and leave a comment on how much you love and adore my bird. This has been the Pacific War Channel. Over and out.
1: Thanks, guys.